and welcome to episode 1716 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Raleigh of Fangraphs. Meg, how was your long weekend? It was good. It was marked by rain, Ben. Yes, yes, where I was as well. I think my my transition to Arizona is complete because I looked at it and I said, oh, we need it. And I mean, we really do. That is a statement of fact. But the delight I took uh, yeah. was was pronounced after having lived much of my life in places that rain <laughs> a great deal. Yeah, I guess growing up in Seattle, you don't really say we need it. No, <laughs> <when> it rains. <laughs> no, you're like, please stop. What ancient or new gods have I angered with mm-hmm. with this to make it continue? But instead, well, on Friday I was like. It's humid here. I feel like I should be able to sue someone about that. Yeah. But then but then there was actual rain and it was very welcome. It cut the mm-hmm. temp, woke up on the actual 4th of July and it was 80 degrees. Went for yeah. a bike ride. Was nice. in the world without, you know, fear of turning to to smoke and ash. So, uh in that <laughs> respect, quite nice. Also yeah. the the good thing about rain the day before the 4th of July is that it discourages people from from doing fireworks late into the evening because it's rainy, and so they are <laughs> flummoxed true. by by the moisture. That was also a welcome reprieve that I did not anticipate. Yes, I will cop to having set off some fireworks where <gasps> I was, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm I'm in the wilderness enough that I don't think it would have bothered anyone. So I kind of had a quintessential holiday weekend, Fourth of July weekend. Got out of the city. Went upstate, it was nice and cool, rained a bit where I was as well, but didn't rain all the time. And so I was able to get outdoors a little and swim a little and split some wood. I had a real woodsman weekend and (laughs) watched Shohei Otani hit a few home runs and then set off a few fireworks of my own. So it was fun. Yeah. You know, after after your last experience, I was just sitting there hoping that Shohei would have a, a nice little run. And uh, he did. I don't think <laughs> the baseballs did. involved were, were happy about it. <laughs> I, I've started thinking about that email question we got about sentient baseballs every time Otani oh, yeah. like destroys one. Yeah. And, you know, I don't, I don't know that it would satisfy them or make them happy to go out the way they did. But gosh, is it pleasing to me. So. Yeah, even when he misses one, like sometimes he'll swing so hard that I wish there was like a stat cast estimate of if he had made contact. That's like the next step we need. The the estimated distance if contact had been made because sometimes like just watching him this weekend, he will take some titanic hacks and yeah. they still look controlled. He's not like fallen down, but he really does not get cheated. And yet... He doesn't have a high leg kick or anything. He doesn't even really take a stride. It's like all strength and hip torque, I guess. And so you're almost surprised to see it go as far as it goes. But it goes really far, at least when the Orioles weren't cowards who were walking him intentionally. Although it's hard to blame them because he's like almost at like... Bond's level of intimidating right now and he seems to like only hit home runs like either bunt singles or or home runs basically and it just it looks almost effortless I know it's not but it looks that way the combination of drag bunt and home run I think I've I've you know we are often asked we've been asked several times in the past like what is sort of your preferred aesthetic around Mm -hmm. baseball and I think that I think that Otani is it I think that he combines things that I find to be really just satisfying like that loud thumping it sounds different off the bat kind of home run is is a 
visceral experience and a deeply pleasing one, but watching a guy, especially like a big dude who I, I, I continue to say, his base running is a thing we should talk about more, right? Oh, when man. guys his size, this is true of Gallo too, like when guys that size are so agile and move so well, it's like it's delightful and still a bit surprising even if you've seen it a couple of times before. And so to have him just do that lovely little drag bunt is just it's just <laughs> the best ben it's the best <laughs> yeah i know some percentage of our audience is sick of hearing me talk about shoyo Otani, <laughs> but at least this time he's the player everyone in the world is talking about right. so it's it's not like when jeff sullivan and i let off every episode for a year or so by talking about williams estadio and not everyone was talking about williams estadio he was internet famous but not a household name but otani is at that level and so perhaps we can be excused for dwelling on him to the extent that we do when everyone else also is, especially on his birthday. We're speaking on July 5th, and Otani turns 27 today. Happy birthday, Shohei. So we had to pay tribute to the birthday boy briefly. But yes, I I think that's right. I was talking about the homers, but really the base running this weekend was just as impressive, if not more impressive. I guess it was the Saturday game, July 2nd, where he hit the two home runs. (laughs) So he had that part down. But he also got on via a walk at the end of the game in the ninth, and he stole second and then had to come back. I forget what it was. I think Anthony Rendon maybe made contact with the catcher or something. And so the steal didn't count, and Otani had to go back to first, and everyone knew that he was going to try to steal again, and they still couldn't stop him. And he stole second anyway. And then Jared Welsh hit a bullet to right field, and the outfielder was playing in in anticipation of the single because it was a tie game, and if Otani scored, the game was over. So he was playing in, and Walsh crushed that ball. And I thought, oh, he's not going to score, even with Otani's speed. He's just not going to be able to score. And he did. Yep. He just he was an absolute dynamo on the bases, and he came in, and he had that slide, and he sort of hit the catcher and flipped over. And I had a moment of terror when he seemed to hit his hand and hit his head and was bounced around a bit but then he had that great moment where he was just lying on his back behind home plate with his arms outstretched having just scored the walk-off run so that was at least as exciting as the home runs and then the hug he had with Walsh after that I must have watched 20 times because it's like in slow motion it was like absolute joy on his face and his hair was bouncing and waving and it was wonderful well, and a couple of all-stars hugging it out, Ben. A couple of all-stars. Yeah. So Tony had a big weekend. He he was voted into the all-star game, as we all know, as a yeah. DH, but then Otani was also- himself is a couple of all-stars. Right, recognized by the players as a, as a pitcher as well. So I think this is the first time in MLB history that a player has been named as an all-star as both a position player and a pitcher. So breaking- mm-hmm. Breaking all sorts of barriers, Otani. And I I would also say to the folks who are like, Ben, you know, you could cool it with the Otani talk. You can listen to Ben talk about Otani, or you can listen to me drudge up weird Mike Zanino fandom as he has become an all-star for the first time. So Mm -hmm. you pick your poison. You let us know. (laughs) I mean, I can do 20 minutes on Mike Zanino, but it's it's really just me talking about framing and, again, Titanic home runs. So, you know, pick your poison. He's fun in his own way. So... (laughs) 
Yeah, and the players selected Otani, I guess there were, what, five pitchers per league selected by the players, or starting pitchers at least, and Otani was one of those on the AL side, and I guess you could say I I haven't actually looked. It's almost too soon to start saying who was snubbed because there are so many players who don't end up going, and then you get many other players deep who eventually do get selected. I don't know whether Otani was one of the five most deserving starting pitchers in the American League. He is certainly the most famous, and I get the sense that like the players are just excited to play with him. Like I, I saw something, I forget who it was, but some player was like, oh, I get to be on Otani's team for it. Like, this is super exciting. So maybe they were just taking no chances. Like, we want Otani to be here and in this game, and we want him to play both ways, and hopefully that will happen. It it certainly seems like it will because he's making his last start before the All-Star break on Tuesday against Boston, and then he'll have plenty of days of rest to get ready for the All-Star game and the Home Run Derby and all the rest. So that'll be a lot of fun. And actually, as I look, Joe Madden confirmed that that was the case, that he has spoken to Kevin Cash, manager and AL All-Star team manager who has said that he will use Otani two ways in that game. So they're figuring out for what innings and how long, but we will see that soon. So I know that you had a a little quibble with the scheduling of some of the events that week, right? (laughs) It's weird. It's like the All-Star game, you have this long lead up of the voting and it's everywhere. And then the actual starters get announced. I think it was like Thursday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, they announced the All-Star starters. There's like all the games were going on, which I guess is not the worst thing because then like you get to talk about it on the broadcast, but you could talk about it on the broadcast even if you announced it at some other time. So it's weird. It's like they schedule this stuff sometimes at the absolute worst time. It's like when they announced the gold gloves on election night last year, I think like no one cares about the gold gloves right now. (laughs) So I know Greg Calcaterra said like maybe all MLB cares about is that you go to the all-star voting website and you click and click and click so that they get the ad revenue or the sponsorship revenue from that. But you'd still think they would want it to get kind of its own time and a little bit of the spotlight. And it was like under cover of darkness while the games were going on, they announced the all-star starters not that there's a ton of suspense about the starters because they give you the updates about the voting status of everyone but beyond that you rightly pointed out i think that the futures game and the draft being on the same day and on a day when there's like a full slate of mlb games right on sunday so (laughs) all of that stuff is at the same time why yes so i think it is useful for us to remember like what are what are real problems and what are media problems and sometimes Mm -hmm. media problems and real problems are the same problem. But I I do think it is useful for media members to not mistake their own inconvenience for like issues of actual import. So like I'm coming in saying that, but I will also say the following, that it makes very little sense to me to have two of your biggest prospect related events occur on the same day. No, granted, not at the same time, but on the same day, back to back in the calendar. It makes especially little sense when you have a perfectly good Saturday. You just have a whole Saturday sitting there waiting for you to plug in a futures game and let everyone watch and get excited about the next wave of young talent coming up. And, And the thing about it is there will be plenty of people who go from the sort of prospect media side and see the futures game but the coverage is going to get eaten up by the draft which is a higher profile event and so I just I find it curious it felt 
to me like someone needed to be in the room and say hey does that make sense i want to know like that and not yeah. just because you know the same 50 people are involved in the coverage of both of those events but also because you want like baseball fans to sort of get excited about it and have there be some buildup and you know get get everybody amped to watch the futures game i checked the schedule and my understanding is that there is nothing happening at Coors that saturday they have a 5k i don't i mean look no one's it's not like it's broadcast do the Futures game on Saturday. Do the doofy celebrity all-star softball game on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And then do the draft in the evening. Also, why are you having day two of the draft the same night as the Derby? That seems <laughs> wrong. And I, I know that the move around the draft's timing was a, a COVID thing. And so, in theory, this will not be quite the setup we have next year. In theory, we will be returning to the, the June draft date, right? And then you can have the Futures game on the Sunday and there's no conflict. And then, you know, you won't be going draft right mm-hmm. into trade deadline coverage. I just, that's a media problem. All on that one. But like the rest of it is, yeah. is silly. I think that you want to space these events out so that people can engage with them and and you can really try to build excitement about it and have stories get written about it. And it's just uh, mushing them together doesn't seem to to make a good deal of sense to me. And so I wish that they had done it differently. And not just because I am 35 and anticipating being tired is almost worse than being tired. <laughs> and isn't the day after the All-Star game just empty? Empty. I, Wednesday, I, I mean. Of baseball, anyhow. <laughs> right. I guess, you know, media members will be traveling and maybe players, if you were to hold the Futures game or something on that day, maybe the minor leaguers would have to get back to their teams. But I don't know. It seems like on a day when you're not competing with a full slate of MLB games, too, that might be nice as well. Yeah, partly it's a media problem, but partly it's like if you do actually want to drum up some interest in these events. And I understand that not every baseball fan and not every MLB fan will be that into these events because, look, it's the baseball draft and it's just inherently not going to be quite as intriguing as an NBA draft, an NFL draft, because the college baseball players or high school baseball players are not as famous and they're further away from the majors and it may be years before you see them playing in the majors and all of that. I, I get that it's probably hard to make it as exciting. But if you want it to be exciting at all, you should probably make it at a time when people can watch it and not be distracted by all of these other games going on. And same for the Futures game. Not everyone is super into prospects, at least unless they're their own team's prospects. But still, if you want to make that a marquee event, it would help at least to make it at a clear spot on the schedule. And this is the opposite of that. So it's strange. Yeah, it just seems mostly like a missed opportunity. And so I hope that next year when things are, when we are further removed from the pandemic, that things sort of settle back into a more sort of typical routine. And I think there will be a lot of reasons that that happens. And the most prominent among them will probably be the preference of teams in terms of when they do draft stuff. But Mm -hmm. trying to think about making big marquee events like this into an opportunity to grow interest in the sport i think is uh is a good thing to do also and then like far far down that list is like the convenience that it renders to media members which is (laughs) you know it is the least important thing here probably but um i think that there are compelling reasons to take advantage of opportunities to showcase talent when you can because uh you know some of these prospects are really really exciting and people 
may not know them, but they also haven't had an opportunity to watch them play. And unlike a lot of other, you know, facets of baseball, where if you really want to seek it out, you can just turn on MLB TV and go watch a guy who, you know, maybe plays in the National League when you watch American League baseball or is on a team that is not in your team's division. Like The opportunities to do this are just a little more scattered. And I think, you know, people aren't going to buy an MILB TV subscription just to happen upon a prospect. So, mm-hmm. you know, like if you want folks to be excited about these guys, I think you have a good event to do it. You just need to put it on a Saturday. Yeah. Please. Well, this seems like a case where uh, we should say, consult us. It's almost like the when we talk about <laughs> movies or TV shows with weird representations of baseball, just, hey, come to us and, and we'll let you know if this seems strange on the surface. You'd think MLB wouldn't have to come to us because they should know baseball pretty well. But when it comes to the marketing and the promotion, sometimes there are some pretty perplexing decisions. So yeah. yes, well, I wish you and Eric Longenhagen and all the rest the best when it comes to actually finding a way to cover all of those things that will be happening at the same time or almost the same time. (laughs) So just a couple of quick things here. I want to read you a list of teams that, as we speak here on Monday afternoon, have a winning percentage that is equal to or better than the New York Yankees. Okay, here we go. Okay. The Giants, still on top somehow. (laughs) The Dodgers, the Red Sox, the Astros, the Brewers, the White Sox, the Padres, the Rays, the Athletics, the Mets, the Mariners, the Blue Jays, Cleveland, the Reds, and the Angels. (laughs) The Yankees, as we speak here on Monday, are 42 and 41. One game over 500. And 15 other teams are either one game over 500 or more games than that. Even the Angels, the lowly Angels we make fun of all the time for being unable to win, even with Trout, even with Otani. They and the Yankees have identical records right now. Oh boy. Things are looking bleak. We talked about the Yankees not that long ago, so we don't have to get too deep into it again. But things have gotten worse even since we spoke about it. And it's not great when you have the same record as the Angels, when the Mariners, who granted have had everything seemingly go their way and win every extra innings game and one run game and all the weirdness that sometimes happens with teams that surprise Still, when that number of teams are ahead of you and you're the Yankees, your fans will be upset. And they are indeed upset. Yes. Well, and depending on what you look at, they are either slightly underperforming their expected record or slightly overperforming it. So their Pythagorean expectation is that they are a 485 team. Their base runs record would have them at 527. So, you know, like they're basically sitting right between to it seems it seems not good um it seems (laughs) as if apart from anything else the back end of their bullpen is exposing itself as a potential weakness right now and so i don't know it seems like the most important takeaway here is that even uh good teams can underperform but you do wonder what they are going to do in the next little bit to address it you know they're one of those teams where if their guys just play better they get you know, second half additions in a weird way. Mm-hmm. But it isn't a team where I would say, oh, they're they're going to make their way through October a long distance. That wouldn't be my impression of, of them watching them. Yeah. So, well. I mean, I wouldn't <laughs> think that about the Mariners either, but, um, <laughs> no. you know, they're, they're in a very different place in their competitive window than the Yankees are. God, wouldn't it be? No, it's fine. We're not going to. We're not doing that yet. <laughs> no. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, they're not a team that I would envision making it deep into October. They're also not a team that I would envision making, making it to it October, October yeah. <laughs> at this point. So yeah, their playoff odds right now, according to Fangraphs, 39.1% chance to make the playoffs with three pretty good teams ahead of them here. It's it's going to be tough. And I guess even their endless streak of not having a losing season since, what was it, 1992, I want to say, was the last time the Yankees had a losing season, which I think is the second longest streak ever behind a, another incredibly long Yankee streak. So I don't think that they will end up under 500, but you know, it's in the realm of possibility now, as is selling at the trade deadline. It's odd. They were projected to be the best team in baseball other than the Dodgers, and that just hasn't happened. And we've talked about all the issues with runners in scoring position and all the base runners making outs on the bases and all of that. And I just, I don't know what to make of them being this bad, but it seems like every day just following Lindsay Adler's Twitter feed, long-suffering Lindsay and... (laughs) exasperated fans seeming to blame the team's fortunes on beat writers asking the wrong questions on zoom calls and nonsense like that but yeah it's it's tough times now and you know you mentioned that their pythagorean record is even worse than their actual record because they've been outscored but part of the reason that they've been outscored is that they've done such a bad job of converting base runners into runs and just to update this stat we cited the other day the yankees with runners in scoring position have an 83 tops plus So their OPS with runners in scoring position is 83% as good as their overall OPS, even though typically OPS with runners in scoring position is even higher than the baseline. They're dead last by a lot in cluster luck on offense. The Mariners, by the way, are the flip side of that. They have a 140 TOPS plus with runners in scoring position. That is first in the majors, and that helps explain how they are 10-1 in extra inning games and and 19-7 in one-run games. But the Yankees just seem too good to be this bad. Everything we know suggests that performance with runners in scoring position is not really a stable and repeatable skill to a great extent and so that might make you optimistic and they have underperformed their expected WOBA based on StatCast stats by more than any other team in the American League, 21 points so they've been hitting the ball better than their stats would suggest and yet still perhaps not hitting it quite as well as one would think that they would based on their previous performance. That's the thing I don't get. Some subset of fans are blaming analytics, quote-unquote whatever analytics means in 2021 when statistical information and scouting information are almost indistinguishable but really they're trailing the Rays the ultimate analytics team the Red Sox who were run by someone from the Rays and managed by someone from the Astros the Blue Jays who were run by former Cleveland executives and managed by a former Rays coach analytics is this vague kind of catch-all if you want to point to some specific problem that might be more helpful but again this is most Mostly the same lineup that has been mashing for a few years, and it's not as if everyone is ancient outside of Brett Gardner. Maybe you could blame them for counting on Aaron Hicks to stay healthy. Maybe you could blame them for mismanaging Clint Frazier, who's just been blocked by more established players. So I just have trouble buying the suggestion that there's this fundamental flaw with the way this lineup is constructed. Yeah, it might make sense to have a few lefties, but these guys should be good. I just don't know. Even if you say it's a team built for a mega-juiced ball and sticky stuff, it's tough to blame management for conditions that changed suddenly in a barely predictable way. And speaking of the sticky stuff, it was 
just funny on Sunday when they announced some of the all-star players, they announced that Garrett Cole and Aroldis Chapman had made the all-star team as Garrett Cole and Aroldis Chapman were in the, in the midst of imploding in a game against the Mets. Cole lasted into the fourth. He pitched three and a third innings, gave up four runs, six hits, three walks, and then Chapman came in and blew another save and took the loss again. And both of those guys, it's been rough lately. And I don't know how much to attribute to the lack of sticky stuff, but because they're who they are, I think everyone is is looking at the samples and looking at how they've been since date X. You know, June 3rd, I guess, was the day when some of the details came out about what the enforcement plan was going to be. And since that point, Garrett Cole, who's had six starts and came into that period with, you know, the best stats of any American League pitcher, he has a 5.24 ERA with 38 strikeouts and 11 walks in 34 and a third innings pitched, 756 OPS allowed. If you look in his last three starts since the enforcement actually started, 6.46 ERA, 884 OPS allowed. 18 strikeouts and eight walks in 15 and a third innings. And then with Chapman, who had already looked a little shaky at times before the sticky stuff enforcement went into effect, but just his last three outings since it did, he has a 60.75 ERA over that period. That's not so good. Six walks and two strikeouts in an inning in the third. And a 1972 OPS. That is not in the range of OPSs that I typically see. So that's been bad. And, you know, Lucas Giolito is another guy who has come up just because Josh Donaldson was calling him out for sticky stuff usage and his spin rates have been down. And just in his two starts since the enforcement went into effect, he is a 7.36 ERA, 11 innings, six strikeouts, two walks. It's, It's tough because like, You can always slice and dice and find a few outings at any given time. Right. Some good pitcher will probably have had a run of a few lousy starts, and these guys are coming under really close scrutiny because they've maybe been associated with the sticky stuff or they've suffered some RPM declines. And it's not like on the whole, everyone who has lost some RPM has completely fallen apart. So it really varies based on the pitcher. Like I know there was a a Fangraphs piece just from this past week about – Garrett Richards, right, who was one of the more outspoken pitchers about, oh, I'm not going to be able to throw a breaking ball anymore. I can't get a grip. And Devin Fink wrote about how he has had to reinvent himself, or at least he has decided to reinvent himself. And he's like junking pitches and inventing new pitches. And it's almost like, are you doing too much? Did you have to do all this stuff? It's really not working for you. (laughs) So I don't know whether you need to completely reinvent yourself or whether it's almost in some pitcher's heads. Because like we haven't seen the hit by pitch rate go up. I believe it's actually been a bit down in June compared to the prior two months. So I don't know what to make of it. Yeah, and I will say for those of you who haven't either read Devin's piece or Jim McCaffrey's interview with Richards in The Athletic, like he he says that he used sunscreen and rosin and not any of the stickier stuff. So we'll right. just throw that out there. But yeah, in a you know, in a bit of trivia that will surprise no one given what we've just said, if you look at the Yankees bullpen over just the last 30 days, you might look at their war rankings on Frank Rass and say, well, this doesn't look so bad. And then you look at like what the bullpen has done from a win probability added perspective. And again, to the surprise of absolutely no one, both given how WPA works and what results they have had, 29th in baseball. The only only bullpen worse from that perspective, 
the Diamondbacks, which, you know, it's, it's not the best because Diamondbacks famously having a pretty bad season. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. They've been bailed out by some unlikely sources, such as Nestor Cortez Jr., who is a lot yeah. of fun. If, if anyone has not seen him, really the quintessential crafty lefty, I yeah. guess, although he's only 26, but he doesn't throw very hard. And yet he's like quick pitching and he's like slow pitching and he's all funky and it's been working great so and far. He's, he's at 1.29 ERA through 21 innings. Yeah, the, the windup is bizarre in the best way. <laughs> he's got that stash. So, yes. you know, if you're if you're a Yankees fan, you're like, what will I hold on to? You could right. you could hang on to Nestor in like a, you know, metaphorical sense. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I wanted to mention is that fortunately, Otani's still healthy, still with us, still cranking homers every day. But Kyle Schwarber, who was seemingly matching him homer for homer for a while and was his counterpart as player of the month in June, he hurt himself. And so yeah. his pair has been halted for a while. He hurt his hamstring rounding first base after a single on Friday. So I guess his mistake was hitting something other than a homer because he wasn't tearing any hamstrings during his home run trots. So the single was a mistake. But I wanted to mention this, you know, he'll be out for a while, it looks like, at least until August. And hamstrings, we've talked about hamstrings recently. I guess we talked about it when Nick Madrigal was out for the season because of his hamstring. But it's really been an epidemic this year. And Derek Rhodes and Rob Means wrote about this recently at Baseball Prospectus in the middle of last month, and Derek has been keeping track of the injury data for BP, and he's noted that all kinds of injuries are up, but hamstrings seem to be the most up of anything, and it's really been a problem here. I'm just reading from this piece, which I'll link to. The Orthopedic Journal of Sports Medicine published a study of hamstring injuries in baseball in 2019 with data compiled during the 2011 to 2016 seasons. It has several conclusions, many of which predate this year's body count. Hamstring injuries are rising, and again, this is before this year and before the pandemic. Over 60% of them occur while running the bases. Over half occur when batters run from home to first. The mean time missed was 14.5 days, well above the 10-day IL threshold. They often recur. The recidivism rate was 16% in the year study. They are usually serious. Only 12% were mild grade 1 strains. The remainder were grade 2 and grade 3 injuries involving partial or complete tears. And the rate of injuries is highest in April, followed by May, and then June. It's thus reasonable to expect the wave of hamstring injuries to recede. And then he continues, why the sudden jump in hamstring injuries this year? Causes of hamstring injuries include a lack of warming up before exercise and muscle imbalances like tight quadriceps or weak glutes. None of these should be the case with professional athletes. And Derek also tweeted a visualization of hamstring injuries over the past few years that have caused a player to spend at least 30 or more days on the IL. And he noted on July 3rd that to that point in the 2019 season, there had been eight such occurrences. In 2021, there have been 21, and that wouldn't even count Schwarber's injury. So Derek tweeted, as far as I'm concerned, 2021 will forever be known as the year of the hamstring strain. I hope that's not how I will remember it, but it's still concerning, and as he said, have to to imagine it will be a pretty big topic for training and medical staffs this offseason to try to address. Maybe hamstrings should just be banned. I don't know how to explain it, whether it's still a product of the weird 2020 and whether there are players who weren't able to work out the way that they normally would have and maybe still have some muscle imbalances or something, but... 
it sounds like teams and players are really just trying to figure this out, but it's uh, it's bad. It's it's hurting lots of players and hurting us because we don't get to watch them while they're out with their hamstring strains or tears. Yeah, it's strange. Like we expected, I think when we were coming into the season, we had talked about sort of our concern around soft tissue stuff because last year when the KBO came back, they had sort of a rash of soft tissue injuries, right? Mm. It did seem like maybe we would get past that because even though guys had a strange year last year, like the ramp up to this season was much more typical. And it's not like you have to put innings on your hamstring, right? That's Mm -hmm. not really the way that works. It's so different than it is for pitchers and arms. So yeah, I I don't know that I have a great explanation to account for it, but I wish it would stop because uh, we're losing out on some really fun stories. Like I wanted... You know, it would have been nice to see Schwarber hitting home runs in course after this oh, yeah. tear. I would, yeah, he was going to be in the home run derby. Yeah, I was, anymore. I was amped for that. Yeah, this is why I'm kind of in the anti-hustle camp. Yeah. <laughs> not like you should never hustle, but if it's not an extremely high leverage moment, maybe just ease off a little bit because, you know, you might get yourself an infield hit and that's nice, but you might also hurt yourself and then cost yourself and your team many, many hits. But it's weird. In some of these cases, it's not even like a product of extreme hustle where you could say that it's like, I'm just remembering Mike Trout's calf injury, not a hamstring, but he wasn't going all out. He was just jogging and suddenly it it popped or whatever. And Schwarber was rounding first after a single. So that doesn't seem like a, a case of going all out either. So I don't know what to make of this. Not that Schwarber seems like the, the most limber major leaguer necessarily, but you would think that players would be conditioned well enough that they wouldn't just tear stuff while jogging lightly. <laughs> I don't want to question their conditioning or teams, but it seems odd. Anyway, it's a bummer that all these hamstring strains have happened, but better a hamstring strain than season-ending shoulder surgery, which is what happened to Sixto Sanchez of the Marwins. So that's a, an even bigger bummer. No mm-hmm. Sixto this season, unfortunately. Womp womp. Yep. All right. So on a happier note, hopefully, let's get to our guest today. And this is a guest we teased a little bit last week, Mickey Janis of the Orioles. And Mickey Janis, for those of you who don't know, is a knuckleball pitcher. He was a 44th round pick of the Tampa Bay Rays in the 2010 amateur draft. He is 33 years old. He's listed at 5'9", 195. He is a right-handed pitcher, but yes, he is a knuckler. And he recently made the majors with the Orioles. He is back in AAA now. Hopefully that stay will be temporary. But we brought him up when he was called up, and we said that we might dig into him a little later with Mickey Janis himself. Normally we do the meet a major leaguer segment periodically, and I thought about doing one for Mickey, but then I thought maybe we can just actually meet him ourselves and (laughs) he can meet all of you on the podcast. So I suppose I will play the Meet a Major Leaguer theme song, and when we return from that, we will be joined by a Major Leaguer who is technically not currently a Major Leaguer, but was very recently a Major Leaguer, and so he's still eligible for this segment. Our idea was anyone who debuted in the big leagues this year, and Mickey Janis is one of those people. So we will be back in just a moment with Mickey. a major leaguer. I am very eager to meet this nascent major leaguer. It's the thrilling debut of somebody new. Let's meet this mysterious 
right, we are joined now by Mickey Janis, a pitcher for the Norfolk Tides, but recently a pitcher for the Baltimore Orioles, and hopefully soon to be a Baltimore Oriole again. Mickey, welcome to the show, and congrats on getting the call. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So I want to ask you how you found out and what it felt like when you made the majors for the first time, but I guess we should go back a bit, and I'm sure you've told the story a million times, but everyone always wants to hear the knuckleball origin story and how Pitcher picked it up, and it's tough to do that these days because in the past, knuckleballers would often be taken under another knuckleballer's wing, and you would learn it firsthand from someone, but there are just so few knuckleballers around these days that that's kind of tough to do. And as I recall from talking to you a couple of years ago, you were sort of self-taught to an extent. So how did you make that transition and how did you pick it up? Yeah, I mean, uh, when I was a kid, I just, you know, fooled around with it and uh, watched a special on Tim Wakefield. And when I was about 12 or 13 years old, I used to throw it with three fingers. And then when I watched this special, I made the switch to two fingers on the on the ball instead. And ever since then, I went out and threw it. And it's always been really good when I when I messed around with it. So I, I uh, knew I always had it in my back pocket kind of feeling. And um, when I got released by the Tampa Bay Rays um, as a conventional pitcher, I just wanted to do something different. Um, as I was just an average, average right-handed pitcher at the time, you know, 88 to 92 mile an hour fastball, sinker slider, changeup, just felt like I wanted to do something different. So that's kind of where it all started. And that was back in 2011, 2012, when I made the transition. And that was sort of the, the heyday of R.A. Dickey, I guess. So was that an influence on you? Did you model the pitch on him at all? Or was it just that he was having such success at the time that you figured you'd try it? Yeah, I mean... I think I knew I always had a good one when I played catch. And then on top of that, R.A. Dickey was really starting to turn the corner into being like a dominant starting pitcher using the knuckleball. And I threw it really hard comparable to his knuckleball because when people think of the knuckleball, they think of a 65, 70 mile an hour, like floating knuckleball pitch. And then R.A. Dickey kind of made that switch to where it was, you know, upper 70s, low 80s at the time and kind of what I threw mine at. So seeing his success kind of reflected on like, hey, maybe teams are going to be more interested in more interested in this going forward based on the fact that he's so different than every other knuckleballer, not just a knuckleballer, but from every other starting pitcher as well. I saw that as an opportunity and just like, let's, let's see where it can take me. I'm curious how that process went for you as you're trying to refine that pitch in indie ball, which isn't necessarily a place that has as strong a developmental focus as affiliated ball would, would be. So what were the tools that you used to not only start to hone the pitch, but sort of course correct as you were trying to develop it a bit more? Yeah, the first the first couple of years were definitely a struggle. I know in 2012, when I signed with an independent ball team, I actually got traded twice before I even started throwing an independent ball like that offseason, 2011-2012. Oh, <laughs> um, I got traded twice, and then when I, when I season finally started, I think I showed up, and I don't even know if the coaches realized that I had switched to the knuckleball. Like in my mind, I was switching to the knuckleball, but in – their mind they were getting this pitcher who had two decent years and affiliated ball with the Rays you know nothing nothing spectacular but you know enough to to get a job in indie ball so they were expecting that when I showed up and then I'm like well I'm a knuckleball pitcher now and 
they're like, okay, well, let's see what you got. And I earned a starting, starting role out of the spring training and I kind of struggled with it. I was just effectively wild, you know, obviously trying to figure out how to throw for strikes and when to mix it in. Cause I still wanted to throw, like I said, I still had my fastball in the upper eighties, low nineties and my slider was really good. So, you know, I still wanted to keep those in my repertoire, but also, you know, switching to the knuckleball. And when I struggled, they kind of moved me back to the bullpen where I had success in affiliated ball. So I kind of got rid of the knuckleball because I'm like, I basically have to pitch for my job now. Like I'm, cause they can easily find another pitcher to, to take my spot. So I was like, well, I got to keep my job. So I kind of got rid of the knuckleball for the rest of the season and um, ended up throwing really well out of the bullpen. Um, and then the following year I got the, I stayed on the same team and we got a new coach. And that was when I was like, really like, I got to give this thing a full go with the knuckleball. And he was, he was supportive of it. And again, like there's a few struggles here and there, but I really started off the season well. And then I actually got, I think that was the year I got traded from the frontier league to the Atlantic league. And then I went back from the Atlantic league to the frontier league after I struggled in the Atlantic league with it. Um, you know, a little bit better hitters, a little more advanced, you know, little things like that. And again, just kind of, you know, it's not going to be perfect every day and it's hard in any ball because it's really all about winning for those coaches. Cause those coaches are basically the general manager, you know, putting the team together and they're, they're playing for their job. So they need to win. So they're finding the best guys. So, you know, there was just struggles with that. I went back to the frontier league to finish the 2013 season and pitched really well and actually went to the Australian baseball league that off season and um, that's, I think that's really where I started throwing well with it. I became like a full-time starting pitcher there and threw the ball well. And then going into the 2014 season, again, went back to the same Frontier League team. Again, ups and downs with it. And then I got traded back to the Atlantic League because they needed a starting pitcher. And I was like, this is it. I got to, this is my shot. I got to go out. And I went out my first outing and I threw seven shutout innings and had like eight strikeouts. and like that was kind of the turning point in my my career with the knuckleball I think was when I stuck in the Atlantic League against those better hitters to show that it was effective against those hitters so 2014 was kind of the the turning point for me I think and with all that moving around how do catchers react when you come in and say well guess what my primary pitch is <laughs> yeah i know uh for catchers you kind of have to embrace it and unfortunately not every catcher does i've had some pretty good catchers in the mets organization and then same thing with the orioles here that have embraced it have done pretty well with it so that's been fortunate enough for me but most of the catchers i had in indie ball you know embraced it embraced the challenge but it, it's definitely a challenge every time i mean i know like most guys go out and throw bullpen so the bullpen catcher on days when they need some work or you know starting pitchers in between starts but i always like to throw to at least one one of the actual catchers just because of the fact that it's something that you don't see every day so just to get that work and just to get them comfortable with catching me and um they've been they've been really good about it here with the Orioles so that's that's been nice to have and at any point I, I guess the Mets picked you up in 2015 by then Dickey had moved on to Toronto have you played with or been coached by anyone who threw the knuckleball and, and could actually help you from personal experience or is it still sort of just trying to figure it out on your own 
Yeah, I'd say 95% of it's still trying to figure it out on my own from day to day and, you know, game to game basis. But um, I do have conversations with, with a couple guys at the very beginning. I had some conversations with Charlie Huff, was able to work with him once or twice. And then lately it's been uh, Tom Candiotti reached out to me when I played in the Arizona Fall League. You know, we've had some conversations about it and kept in touch. But really, I mean, even people who reach out to me asking like, hey, how do you throw the knuckleball? And it's it's really hard to just like go out and coach it or just like tell them like, hey, this is what I this is what works for me, mm-hmm. you know, without like seeing them throw it or without having any like trial and error, because it's it's really it's really a feel pitch. And for me, like, you know, what works one day might not work the, the next day sometimes, you know, but it's just trying to get that consistent delivery down for me all the time. Well, and unlike a lot of pitches, you don't have some of the tools that another pitcher might have at his disposal to assess how the pitch is working and what his mechanics look like in it. So can you talk a little bit about why you lean toward Edgetronic and sort of the role that high-speed video is playing for you here? Because I think a lot of our listeners are used to guys, you know, throwing in front of a TrackMan or a Rapsodo, and that tech doesn't always work that well for a knuckleball. So how are you How are you getting the information that you need to make adjustments? Yeah, I mean, for my bullpens, I just try and get in front of the, in front of the Edgetronic camera just because that's the only way I'm able to see how my ball spins and rotates, even though it's different during the game. I don't have that video during the game to see how it's moving. Um, but usually the hitter will tell me enough based on his reactions and his swings, if it's moving or how it's, how well it's doing that day. So just when I, I'd say more when I'm like, when I'm not feeling right is when I really try to get on the camera a little bit more just to see what it's doing just so I can get that feel back. And cause usually when I see the ball rotating a certain way, like if it's rotating too much, a certain way I can, I can go like, Hey, I'm doing this wrong mechanically, or, you know, I'm getting on the side of it a little bit too much at release or something like that, where I can, I can kind of make that adjustment on my own for the next time I go out and throw a bullpen or in the game or, you know, something like that. So just getting on the camera and being able to slow it down and, and just uh, seeing the spin on the ball has helped me a lot in making those adjustments from game to game, depending on, on how I feel and how I, how I see it's coming out of my hand on the camera. Yeah. And when I talked to you the first time back in, I think it was August, maybe or September of 2019, it seemed like you had just had a bit of a breakthrough with the camera. You were still with Binghamton, the Mets AA affiliate, and suddenly you were striking out double-digit batters, it seemed like, every time out. 10 batters, 12 batters, you know, struck out five, but threw eight scoreless innings and then struck out 10 again. Has that continued or was that just a a blip? You know, usually you're not accustomed to seeing such high strikeout numbers for a knuckleballer with some exceptions. So now that you've been in AAA and even in the majors, do you feel like you're throwing it as well as you have ever thrown it? Not really. It's been a little bit of an adjustment this year because um, I've been thrown out of the bullpen too. Mm. So just being able to, like when I, you know, in the major league game, I came in out of the bullpen and I'm still making that adjustment of getting that feel, you know, directly for that first batter and um, throughout the rest of the game and trying to control the adrenaline of coming in out of the bullpen. It's just a little bit different um, feel for me going into the game. And again, like I said, game to game adjustment is different for me. So 
Um, just learning to control that adrenaline because with the knuckleball, I almost don't want to be too like hyped up. Like, you know, if you're coming in out of the bullpen, throwing fastballs, you sometimes you can just throw it as hard as you can and get away with it where that's not the case with the knuckleball. You really need to kind of sometimes just slow everything down and take spin off the ball. And even, you know, like I, like we talked about in 2019, I was throwing the knuckleball a couple miles an hour harder than I ever had before, just because it was just feeling so easy coming out of my hand that way at that time. And I was able to just be consistent with it. Those six or seven starts, whatever I had on that, on that run. And, you know, after taking uh 2020 off because of COVID, you know, just, still trying to get that feel back this year where like sometimes I've had it and then sometimes I haven't. So I think my command has been a little bit off this year, but at times I've I've been, I've been really good with it. And then other times I've, you know, been effectively wild with it where I'm still able to, you know, get some weak swings and stuff like that. But the command hasn't felt as good as it has at that 2019 run, but been making some adjustments the last few addings and I've, feel like I'm headed that, that direction to get that, that feel back. So it's just a matter of getting out in the games and just being able to throw as much as I can. Cause I feel like the more I throw, the better it gets. So just getting out there and pitching and, and throwing and just getting that feel back um, every time out there. The name of this podcast is effectively wild. So you're giving us some good promotion here. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. some people may have learned that you were with Baltimore this spring when you were in big league camp and you were throwing on the, the high speed camera, I guess, and you sort of went semi-viral when people were looking at your knuckleball on Twitter, not spinning all the way to the plate. But you signed with Baltimore last January, January of 2020. And of course, there was no minor league season, but it seems like, I don't know if it was you or your agent, but Baltimore kind of currently rebuilding and always in need of arms. So it seems like a a pretty smart place to play and also a place that has some history of trying to cultivate knuckleballers. You know, back in 2013, I guess it was, they hired Phil Necro as a consultant and they brought in a few knuckleballers. So your old team, the Rays, tried the same thing a few years later with mixed results, but clearly there's some organizational openness, it, it seems, to trying to bring along knuckleballers. So how did you end up with Baltimore and what sort of targets did they set for you? Yeah, they just gave me a call in the off season of uh, 2020 and there's a couple other teams that showed interest, but they had a good conversation with me and, and it was about the whole, um, they're bringing in a lot of the high speed cameras and, you know, they asked me like how it affected, you know, my pitch and how it helped me out and, you know, just having a conversation with them about it and not just, you know, talking about like, Hey, we, we like you, we want you. That was, you know, that's what some of the other teams had expressed, but they were really intrigued by like what I was doing. And they were really interested in trying to learn about how I pitch with the knuckleball instead of just, you know, like, Oh, you throw a knuckleball. Yeah, sure. You know, (laughs) um, having that conversation with them about it and, you know, then he went back and the scout who called me went back and talked to front office or whoever he talked about. And his last comment, I just remember him saying, like, if we decide to go the knuckleball route, we're going to be all in on you. So we're going to be bought in. And, you know, so far they have been and having conversations with, you know, the big league pitching coach and, and, and our triple A pitching coach down here. And, you know, all the different pitching coaches that have been in the organization, you know, just trying to talk to them and having them learn me because most of them haven't 
had to work with a knuckleball before knuckleball pitcher before. So them trying to learn what I can do and help, help them point things out when I'm, you know, not necessarily on the right path or when I'm struggling in a game or something like that, you know, just having them be able to help me. So, um, them just being totally bought in on, uh, the knuckleball has, has been a huge help for me. And that has all led up to June 22nd when you were called up and were able to make your major league debut. And I'm sure that the specifics of that outing you maybe wish had gone a little bit differently, but I wonder if you can talk about what that experience was like. Where where were you when you got the call? What did it feel like? I know you had, I think, a, a good amount of family there to to watch your debut. So what was that day like for you? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a crazy, crazy day, that's for sure. I know uh, we had just gotten... I think we're just finished the home home series. So we're, we had an off day and um, just got up in the morning talking to my wife and ended up just hanging up with her and my daughter. Cause they were getting, they were actually on vacation in New, New Jersey. So I just talked to them and five minutes after I hung up with them, I got a call from our manager, Gary Kendall down here um, in Norfolk. And, you know, he doesn't usually call at that time. So, and usually if it's something different with the pitching rotation, it will be the pitching coach that reaches out to you. So when he called, I kind of had an idea. I'm like, he's, he wouldn't be calling with bad news really at this early in the morning, especially if we're going to be at the field later, he'd, he'd want to tell you in person. So I kind of had a feeling and he called and he just said, Hey, I really wish I could make this talk in person, but um, it's one of the best phone calls I've ever had to make. And just letting you know that the Orioles have, purchase your contract and you're going to be heading to Baltimore here today. And, you know, congratulations. This is, this is one of the best, best phone calls I've made and best of luck. Just be yourself, stay true to yourself, you know, do your thing up there, you know, best of luck to you. And the team will be reaching out with travel plans. That's pretty much it. So, and then as soon as he said that, you know, my whole body just started kind of shaking and you're just like, Oh my God, this is, this is happening. And then, you know, hung up with him and called my wife right back. And she's like, why are you calling me back so quick? (laughs) I was like, are you ready to go to Baltimore? Like, you know, you just hear her scream. And then, um, she was with some of her family and you just hear them scream in the background once they heard. It was just exciting. And I called my parents, my sister, and started making some phone calls and packing at the same time. So it was just crazy. Just just the whole, uh, the whole experience. And at the same time, you're like trying to take it all in, but at the same time, your mind's going a million miles an hour, um, trying to figure out what you're going to be doing and, and all the plans and everything. So, um, yeah, it was just, uh, it was just a wild day. It's even <laughs> hard to try and think back as the, as the, like what I was actually doing because it was just <laughs> like, uh, it was almost like an out of body experience. Like I'm doing all this stuff and trying to get ready to go to the field, pick up my stuff and hit, head to the airport and, and, and and everything so it was just uh it was just a crazy day yeah so had that calmed down at all by the next day june 23rd when you made your major league debut or was it even more of a fever pitch by then did you know that you would be probably pitching that day no i didn't know i was out of the bullpen so you know anything can happen you're just kind of staying ready the whole game yeah the first day situation didn't call for me so um that i think that helped a little bit I think when I'm warming up in the bullpen and about to run out to the field, that's when it was really kind of, really kind of hit me. And then, you know, usually when you're out on the field, you don't really like hear what's going on, especially when you're like warming up and stuff. But for some reason, when I was like on the mound, I heard the PA announcer just 
go making his major league debut, <laughs> Mickey Janice on the mound or whatever. And that's when it kind of hit me like I was on the mound and, you know, you're just like so much adrenaline and try, trying to get the feeling in your legs and stuff like that. So it's just like, and again, that's, that's where it was kind of tough for me is just like, you know, with the knuckleball, you're really trying to, trying to hold back the energy because you want to be under control with everything. And so I think I was able to do that first little bit of the game, but as the game went on, I mean, obviously the results weren't what I wanted, but just to be out there was, was pretty amazing and, and exciting and, you know, trying to remember it all and take it all in was, like I said, I mean, it's just hard to put into words, the feeling out there. Yeah. And they really threw you into the fire. It's a pretty tough assignment for your major league debut. You come in and you're facing the heart of the order of the Astros, the best hitting team in baseball this season. And suddenly you're facing Jordan Alvarez out of the pen in the fifth inning and you struck him out looking your first batter in the big league. So that must have felt pretty good. And and really your first time through the lineup things went pretty smoothly and it was uh, only once you got to the seventh and you're facing Alvarez and Correa and Tucker and, you know, all these guys again, that uh, the wheels kind of came off a little bit at that point. But with the knuckleball, if you get hit, do you know why you're getting hit? Is it is it hard to tell just because the pitch is sort of so mysterious and it's hard to get a feel for it? You know, if guys are hitting it, does that mean that it's just not floating right that day? And then do you know why it isn't? And if so, are you able to <laughs> diagnose and self-correct? Or is it just one of those things where it's like, oh, I had it for a little while and now it's gone? Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's hard to tell because there are some days where, you know, you don't have it and you don't get hit or you do have it and you do get hit. So some days it is hard to hard to understand, like, the feeling of, like, man, I really thought I had a good one today and I got hammered or I didn't have a good one at all. You know, I, there's be some games where I go home and tell, tell my wife, I'm like, geez, I really felt terrible out there. Like I didn't think I had a good one at all today. And I, you know, go a couple shutout innings or something like that, you know? So it's just, it is difficult sometimes, but I think, um, you know, I, I was able to see some video on, uh, on the game, like I said, I don't think it was my best knuckleball that day. And I was able to make some adjustments going into my last start in Norfolk. Just pitched last week on Thursday, I believe, through okay. Um, and then, you know, just, again, getting on that high-speed camera for me is a lot of help. And, and um, just seeing seeing the video of what the ball is doing, how it's spinning, how it's rotating, or if it's not spinning, I should say. But, you know, there are all those days when you're like, man, I really felt like the ball was spinning. The catcher was catching me very easily because a lot of times that that's the tell for me, too, is if the catcher is catching me very easy. I'm like, you know, it might not have been that good that day. So that's where it's good to get on the camera for me and just see those, see how it is moving so I can make those adjustments where I feel like, oh, I'm, like I said, getting on the side of the ball or getting I think in the in the major league game that I threw, I was getting a lot more like backspin. So I was just just getting a little, I think, just a little too amped and fired up for the game, and just overthrowing just a little bit. And sometimes that happens for me when I mix in too many fastballs or you know something like that. Just trying to overthrow or or not really trying to overthrow sometimes, and it just you know it just happens. But like I said, I feel like I've made a few adjustments to come out better next time and get ready for my next start. 
So when you entered the game, the internet sat up and took notice just because of how few knuckleballers there are. People were excited for your debut, but your exit also garnered a lot of attention because you, along with every other major league pitcher, were checked for sticky stuff. And you're one of the few pitchers we've been able to talk to since the new enforcement started. So I wonder if you could talk about what that experience was like, because... (laughs) You know, if anyone's going to be assumed innocent here, I imagine a knuckleballer is high on that list. So what was the check like? Yeah, I mean, it was just a quick check. You know, they rub down my glove and check your belt and check your hand and hat for stuff. But yeah, I think they kind of know that, you know, I'm not trying to increase spin at all. And the last (laughs) thing I want to do is create spin for the knuckleball. But it's part of the game now. So, I mean, I don't have an issue with it. So, I mean, it was kind of a quick little check and they actually ended up saying congratulations on your debut right after. So that was kind of nice. But, but yeah, it was, uh, you know, I just kind of asked the question, like, do I need to take my belt all the way off? Like, what do you need to check? (laughs) Um, Because again, that was my first check too. So I didn't know exactly what to expect, but yeah, so it was just a, a quick run through of everything. And again, my emotions were so high. Like the fact that I even remember him saying congratulations at the end was, you know, I, you know, it was just uh, such a high for me that it was it was hard to remember exactly what the, the conversation was like, but I do remember him saying congrats at the end of it. So I was like, <laughs> Is there any advantage to getting a, a grip? I mean, I know you're probably not trying to grip it too tightly, and as you said, you want it to be spinless, but have you used anything in the past? Is it beneficial to use anything, you know, not the, the hardcore spider tack stuff, but do you even use rosin or, or the legal stuff or do you really no, just, I, no. I used to use, I used to use rosin when I was a conventional pitcher when it was really sweaty, hot and sweaty in the summer. But um, when I kind of made the switch to being a full-time knuckleballer, I was like, I got to stop using the sticky stuff because it, I was thinking that it would help me dry my hand off from the sweat, but it really made it tacky too sometimes. But yeah, ever since I made the switch to knuckleballer, I I try not to use anything. And as much as I can trying to, to dry my hand off from sweat, I'm just wiping it on the side of my pants or, you know, my sleeve or something like that just to dry my hand off. But yeah, I want the anti-stick. I need it as kind of slippery as possible. So it just kind of comes out of my hand a lot smoother. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And I believe you're the first person to wear number 76 in Orioles history. Is there a story behind that? Uh, No, there's not. It's just the number that was assigned to me. Um, <laughs> so I thought that was kind of cool, though, that I was the first person to wear it. And when they sent you down, did they say, hey, we'll see you soon, or here's what we want you to work on to get back up here? I mean, did they leave you with any hope that it won't be a, a long time back in AAA, or are you just kind of, well, I got to work my way back up again? Yeah, I mean, I had some good conversations with Michael Elias and, and uh, Chris Holt after my outing. But again, it's it's baseball. There's no timetable for anything. Even if they give you a timetable, most of the time that changes anyway. So um, for me, it's just, just going back to work and, you know, perfecting the knuckleball and trying to get it as spinless as I can mm-hmm. every time out. And just for me, it's always just, you know, getting guys out right now and, and pounding the strike zone as much as I can. So, you know, when I talked to Chris Holt after the game, you know, he just said there were some positives from the game. And, you know, obviously, you know, the results weren't the best, but you're able to eat up some innings for us. And we look forward to that in the future and, you know, keep pitching your game and doing what we always talk about, you know, between our conversations we've had about the knuckleball where he's trying to learn what I can do. And I'm trying to help him learn about it. So he's just, 
trying to get back on track to what's been most successful for me in my career. So just, just back to work pretty mm-hmm. much. And is any part of you able to think, you know, I'm a 44th round pick, that round of the draft doesn't even exist anymore, not even close. I was in indie ball, I play all over the world, I'm 33, like, it's amazing to make it to the majors. It's an incredible accomplishment, so few people get to do it. And coming from your background and how you made it to that point, it's really amazing. And so I wonder if you're able to savor that in the moment and think, hey, I made it, I I beat the odds. Or can you not even allow yourself to feel content or satisfied because you want to make it back up and stay there for a while? Yeah, I mean, it, it is pretty cool. I mean, it, it happened so fast. Like I told some of my family, it was, it was up and down so fast that it, it was just such a, a crazy week of travel and and everything. So um able to, you know, after the game, you know, you kind of, you never really think you're going to be down that fast, but at the same time, you know, that's all part of the game. And I know they still value me a little bit. So like I said, it's just, it's just been back to work and, you know, those, all those numbers that you rattled out the 44th round draft pick, 33 years <laughs> old, you know, they are, they are all just numbers. So you do, you know, at the end of the day, you, you realize like I, I did get to pitch in the major leagues, but at the same time, you know, that that's not just the goal is the pitch there is to stay up there and, yeah you know, to compete up there at the, at that level. And, you know, I know how close I am because I, I did get there, but now it's about getting back there and staying up there. So like I said, back to work and doing what I can to, to get back up there. So just coming down here, back down to Norfolk and, you know, getting guys out and doing the best I can to, to hopefully help the Orioles in the future. And right now just helping Norfolk win some games and, you know, if they see me fit to get back up there, that'd be great. And, mm-hmm. you know, but like I said, it's just pretty much back to work and back to back to the grind, as I always say. Yeah. Well, I wonder, maybe we can leave by asking you a little bit about the future of the knuckleball. And I wonder how much you think about that and whether you feel the weight of that legacy and kind of carrying on the pitch. It's almost unfair. I mean, I'm sure your priority is just making sure you make the majors and everything, but you're you're kind of keeping the flame alive for this pitch that seems almost extinct now. And, and that's been said before. And then another knuckleballer comes along and all it takes is one. And, you know, sometimes knuckleballers last forever. And so that can keep it going. But Really, just by yeah. making it and throwing some knuckleballs in the big leagues this year, you were the first one to do that, the first true knuckleball pitcher, not a, a position player who had a knuckler on the side, but you were the first since Stephen Wright and Ryan Fearbend in 2019. There were no knuckleballers in the big leagues last year, despite Eric Kratz's best efforts. So do you feel any pride in keeping the pitch alive or do you feel any pressure to be the one to do that? Cause you know, you mentioned that you hear from Charlie Huff or you hear from Tom Candiotti. So it, it seems like there's a fraternity of knuckleballers, but there just aren't a lot of active members right now. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's any pressure with it. I definitely want to keep the craft alive. That means I have to pitch for a few more years to, you know, I'll definitely, definitely do my best to stick around in the game as long as I can. And, like I've like I've always told myself and told my family, as long as I feel like I can succeed in the major leagues, I'm gonna keep giving this a shot. So I definitely definitely feel like I can. So I'm gonna you know give it everything I can to to try and stick up there and you know try and carry on the pitch, whether it's me or someone else. You know I'm gonna do my best to to get back up there and stick around longer. 
And one thing I wrote in 2019 that might be a, a glimmer of hope for the future of the pitch is that if you look at the data, it seems like umps call knuckleballs less accurately than any other off-speed pitch, which maybe makes some sense. You know, it's hard to throw, it's hard to hit, it's probably hard to call as an umpire as well. And it seems like often those calls go against the knuckleball pitchers. And so I wondered whether if you bring in the automatic strike zone at some point, perhaps in the next few years, then maybe that helps knuckleballers on the whole. So I wonder whether you've noticed that. I mean, I'm sure every pitcher remembers the calls that go against them, but whether that matches up (laughs) with your perception of how the pitch gets called. I I always try to give them part of the benefit of the doubt. You know, I'm not going to give them a hard time because I know they're doing the best they can out there. And and honestly, the pitch is hard enough to throw, yet alone catch or try and call a strike here and there. But yeah, it's definitely, I feel like if they go to an automatic strike zone, they might have to make some adjustments for the knuckleball just because of the way it can move. Because there have been, you know, you go back and look at video on and see uh, TrackMan and things like that. And you see where the pitch crossed the plate and then you realize it crosses in the strike zone and then it's still bounced. Mm-hmm. And there's no way that would, <laughs> that would be acceptable to most hitters. So if, uh, if they do end up going to an automatic strike zone, they might have to make some adjustments for, for some knuckleball pitchers. But I mean, I wouldn't have a problem if they called it a strike and it's still bounced. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it would be, uh, it'd be interesting to see how it all played out. But, um, but yeah, it would be, uh, Yeah. And you'd think that as pitchers keep throwing harder and harder, that maybe there would be some benefit to the contrast in speeds. I don't know whether that's something you've heard from teammates or from opposing hitters, but especially in short bursts, if you were going to come out of the pen and you're following some flamethrower who's throwing fastball slider, and then you come in with the knuckler that's going, who knows, 20, 30 miles per hour slower, that seems like it would be a tough adjustment. So I don't know, maybe the fact that there are so few knuckleballers and everyone else is throwing so hard might help you in the long run. But I don't know, does that match up with what you hear from hitters? Do you hear much from hitters just because they don't see many other knuckleballers other than you? Sometimes it's hard to talk to the other team, but I mean, you I know uh, there was an article that came out in the LA Times earlier this year about knuckleballer as an opener. Hmm. So that's always kind of been intriguing because we we can throw every day. Like I, I threw close to 70 pitches in that big league game, I think, and three and a third innings and probably needed one day off and then I was good to go the next day. But so being an opener, you know, you'd be able to throw a couple times a week or whatever, just once through the order for an inning or whatever, just, just to throw them off. So, I, I mean, I've always felt like I can pitch every day. So, you know, I think there is some value to that. And that is something that I've talked about with the Orioles you know, in spring training and stuff like that, just how, how much pitching affects me and, you know, being able to come back on short rest and things like that. So I think there is value to that. And that is one of the things they valued about me when they talked about me is that they see me pitching in any role where they need me to spot start. I can spot start. If they need me to eat up innings out of the bullpen, I can eat up innings. If they need me multiple days in a row, I'm fine with doing that too. So I think um, I always just tell them I'm, I'm here to pitch whenever you need me. So I think there is a lot of value to that, especially with, with everybody throwing harder now with, unbelievable breaking balls and stuff like that so it's it's definitely uh the biggest thing is like like I had in the big league game you know I had four walks and three and a third innings you know that's the that's always been the toughest part is you know if the ball doesn't knuckle you it's 
it's basically like a batting practice fastball. And, you know, I gave him three home runs, I had four walks and had a strikeout, you know, you kind of got a little bit of everything in my, in my <laughs> big league debut. So it's, it's just uh, kind of the nature of the pitch. So just making those adjustments. And like I said, I think there is value to being completely different. And that's why I made the switch originally to be a knuckleball pitcher is just because I wanted, I wanted to be different than every other pitcher out there. All right. Well, we hope that you won't be the last of the knuckleballers, but we certainly hope that we haven't seen the last of you on a major league mound. As I'm sure many people have pointed out, 33 is young in knuckleballer years. So you've got plenty of pitching time left for now. You can find Mickey on Twitter at Mickey Janice. You can also find him pitching for Norfolk. He is scheduled to start next on Wednesday. But here's hoping that you get that call again sometime soon. And thank you very much for coming on and for your time today. All right. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. All right. Thanks to Mickey for joining us. And we were talking about how tough the knuckleball can be to catch. Here's a little fun fact for you, courtesy of a tweet by Codify Baseball from March, which Mickey Janice quote tweeted. You know how we feel about the drop third strike around here. It's kind of an archaic vestigial rule. Codify looked up the pitchers with the most career batters who reached base after a strikeout. Here's the list with 73 Phil Necro. 52, Tim Wakefield, 43, Hoyt Wilhelm, 38, Charlie Huff, 32, Wilbur Wood, 30, Joe Negro, 24, Tom Candiotti, and also 24, Dutch Leonard. Noticing a theme here? The most by a non-knuckleballer, 18. So yeah, weird pitch. And I'd encourage you to watch a couple of videos that I will link from the show page. One is that viral video from the spring that I mentioned, which has some great camera work that captures Janice's knuckler in mid-flight. And the other one is an Edgertronic high-speed video that Janice sent to the pitching ninja and in that one you see it from Janice's perspective as the ball wobbles and floats toward the catcher who completely whiffs. It's just a practice pitch but it's not any easier to catch in game. You can also find a video linked from our show page of Janice's pitch grip for his knuckler. And the last thing I want to mention about Mickey, he became a victim of the zombie runner rule. In late May before he was called up, he was pitching in a AAA game, he entered in relief and he threw five perfect innings and yet he took the loss in a 5-4 defeat. He didn't allow a hit, he didn't walk anyone, he didn't strike out anyone, he retired all 15 batters he faced, but he pitched into the 10th inning. The game was tied 4-4, the zombie runner started the inning on second, was bunted over to third, and scored on a sack fly, and Janice took the hard luck loss. So we've gotten the question many, many times over the past couple seasons, can you lose a perfect game? This was not a perfect game because he only pitched five innings and entered in relief, but this is an illustration of the fact that yes, you can now lose a perfect game as unlikely as it is. Thanks to the zombie runner rule, being perfect is no longer necessarily enough. It's like that built to spill song when not being stupid is not enough for Janice. Being perfect was not enough either. And I will leave you with one more link from the show page. For anyone who is a fan of the Nick Castellanos meme, which I wrote about at The Ringer this spring, you know the drive into deep left field by Castellanos that interrupted the Tom Brenneman apology last year. Well, on Monday night in Kansas City, that scene was repeated almost exactly. This time it was not an apology, it was a eulogy. On the Kansas City broadcast, a World War II veteran who recently passed away and was the father of a longtime Kansas City Royals employee was receiving a tribute, and right in the middle of that tribute, Nick Castellanos hit a drive into deep left field. Against the same team, in the same ballpark, and basically the same place, he hit the one last year, and this time he interrupted yet another somber moment, just uncanny. As friend of the show Emma Bacheleri tweeted, if someone in the Reds baseball operations department doesn't come in tomorrow and say, here's the plan, in any one-run game with Castellanos at the plate,
plate, the broadcast must be provided with a piece of solemn news to share. What is even the point of this sport? And lastly, an important follow-up. We recorded our preceding two episodes last Thursday night prior to the news that MLB had placed Trevor Bauer on administrative leave amid the leagues and the Pasadena Police Department's investigations into an accusation that Bauer brutally assaulted a woman with whom he had two sexual encounters earlier this year. You almost certainly know that by now, but just in case there is anyone who follows baseball exclusively via Effectively Wild, which I shudder to think what picture of baseball you have formed from that, but thank you for trusting us as your sole information source. Anyway, we discussed Bauer on episode 1714, and we speculated and hoped that he would be placed on administrative leave prior to his scheduled start on Sunday, and indeed he was on Friday afternoon. So as of yet, there is no resolution there. That administrative leave is a seven-day paid leave, but it can be extended beyond that. And of course, it is also possible for MLB to conclude that he should be suspended before any charges are filed or any arrest is made, or even if those things don't happen. So MLB's investigation is also ongoing, and we will likely let you know what comes of that. So it was sort of strange that MLB took as long as it did to place Bauer on leave. That was the subject of some of our discussion last week, but it became untenable for the league not to do that. I think there was a lot of growing outcry, and whether it was MLB's plan to do that then or not, it was pretty imperative that they make that call. And we thank everyone for your responses to that episode, which seemed to resonate with a lot of you. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Matthew Rakow, Amber Brown, John Klein, Matthew Lakadara, and Wyatt Fine Gagne. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments coming for me and Meg via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We will be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. I'm-